Hi everyone, we are back. Thank you for your patience and for your flexibility with um, taking a little bit more time for the keynote speakers and for our lunch break. I'm going to now move the poll over and in the next couple of seconds, I am going to activate the webcams of our first panel. So today we have panel, or right now, we have panel one, which is nation building in museums in the United States. Our panel will be chaired by Anna Leschenko, Leschenko and Deborah Ziska. Anna is an ICOFOM board member and lecturer of Russian State, Univer of Russian State University for the Humanities. Deborah is an ICOM US and ICOM, ICOM MPR board member, board member of the Friends of the Art Museum of the Americas, OAS, and lecturer for the Museum Studies graduate program at Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. Uh, good afternoon from Washington, D.C. Um, Laura Hall is a foreign policy activist archivist at the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library and Museum, and she is also adjunct faculty for Southern New Hampshire University. Her presentation is entitled, In Lieu of Objectivity, Defining Advocacy in the New Museum. Laura, take it away. Thank you. Um, so I would like to start um, by thanking ICAFOM uh, and the symposium organizers for the opportunity to share. Uh, the idea for this uh, has sort of been kind of rattling around in my head for the last uh, year or so, so it was good to have a reason to uh, explore it a little bit more. Um, so in September of 2017, I attended the annual conference for the Association of State and Local History in Austin, Texas. Uh, with my registration material, I was handed a button that had two sides. One said we should be advocates, while the other said we should be neutral. The buttons helped drum up interest in a workshop called the Advocacy Neutrality Showdown, uh, billed as, quote, an open, honest, energetic set of conversations about the pros and cons of mixing historic interpretation with advocacy work. The topic of advocacy was one that popped up in numerous sessions throughout the conference. I noticed people happily taking sides on whether or not they thought cultural institutions should be advocates or remain neutral on a bevy of topics, including Confederate war monuments, immigration, LGBTQT rights, and so on. While the debate was lively and mostly good-natured, it raised a few questions for me. How do museums maintain a role of objectivity while advocating for a better world? Um, can museums be both advocates and objective? And which role, if either, should be highlighted in ICOM's new definition of museum? When looking to define what a museum is, museologists must look at the way U.S. citizens use museums to define themselves. While it has been argued that U.S. national museums use the past to create a framework for understanding and debating the present, this very nature of museums still relies on objective presentation in order to ensure that each and every citizen is represented and can participate equally. Because U.S. museums represent a, quote, multicultural nation that is for the most part, and with some exception, welcoming to people from around the world, end quote, special attention must be paid to how museums function within the communities and this nation. As museums continue to change their focus and practice, they must remain diligent to the high ethical standards that call for objectivity. And as they help U.S. citizens define themselves culturally and politically, they must be, remain reflexive about the role they play in society. As a public historian, my first inclination is to take a historiographical look 
at the way in which U.S. society used museums to create a singular identity for peoples of different regions, cultures, values, and socioeconomic backgrounds, and how this practice has evolved over the last century and a half. By tracing how the ways in which museums have evolved in the U.S., the field can gain a better understanding of how U.S. museums use authority to help create and reinforce the idea of what it is to be a U.S. citizen. A, under, a greater understanding of this concept highlights the need for museums to remain objective despite the pull to become advocates for any one perspective. The idea for heritage tourism flour, flourished after the Civil War when U.S. citizens, much like their colonial British parents, began creating places of historical pilgrimage. Sites like Mount Vernon, Monticello, the Alamo, Gettysburg, Grant's Tomb, and others associated with the positive mythology of American spirit became popular destinations for U.S. citizens in the early 1900s. In his work, Mystic Chords of Memory, historian Michael Common gives numerous examples of sites and publications from this period that illustrate how nationalism, combined with religious overtones, created, quote, the sense of stability that comes with continuation tied to rootedness. Common's examples also highlight how early U.S. citizens began using a language steeped in a religious identity to describe what it meant to be a citizen. Common cites various publications and articles from the early 1900s that use words like pilgrimage, relic, and sacrifice. This language creates a quasi-right of patriotism, or a way for Americans to participate in a civil public life. This is also reflected in the works of sociologist Robert Bella. Using the language of Rousseau, Bella outlined what he called the American civil religion, suggesting Americans modeled a contract for civil life after the same dogma and symbols of Christianity. Bella defines civil religion as the merging of the spiritual and the political in American culture. Bella's work first appeared in 1967 and is more contemporary than historical, focusing mainly on the 1950s and 1960s. He argues, quote, what we have then from the earliest years of the Republic is a collection of beliefs, symbols, and rituals with respect to sacred things and institutionalized in a collectivity, end quote. The language of worship, and not specifically Christian, has, been, has become a common metaphor for the ways in which U.S. citizens derive a collective identity through both cultural and heritage institutions. Common suggests that post-World War II era U.S. museums began creating a national memory in order to create nostalgic traditions. These traditions were formed as a process of selective memory, which, quote, gave Americans splendid memories and star-spangled amnesia. This was done as a means of coping with a difficult present. As the last half of the 20th century unfolded, the term heritage became interchangeable with selective memory, as a whole industry of heritage tourism popped up to help U.S. citizens learn about their golden past and what it meant to be a citizen in a complex and not often democratic democracy. Maybe it's no small coincidence that at the same time the stories that museums told began to change, so too did the museum's world perceptions of their own authority. The early 1970s marked a period of museum critique and self-reflection, wherein the field acknowledged that public expectations were for the message or interpretation of the objects to reflect the moral and social norms of a broader cross-section of society. The institutionalization of me museums created temples where, quote, those responsible for organizing and structuring the collections were members of an academic curatorial elite. The problem lies in the fact that the value system that determined not only the selections of materials, but also the priorities for its presentation tended to be the value system of the middle class, if not upper middle class elite. Duncan Cameron argues that a museum, quote, must be steadfast in its insistence on proved excellence, on the highest possible degree of objectivity, 
in selection, organization, and interpretation, end quote. This creates a second type of institutional identity for museums, that of a forum, where society can, quote, confront established values and institutions. The forum is accessible and inclusive to all members of society, providing an opportunity to criticize and reinvent perceptions about the past and the present. During this era, museums also began changing both whose stories they were telling and how they were telling them. For American museums, Hans Martin Heinz names the protracted civil rights movement as a catalyst for change, arguing that the need to tell the story of the other is a turning point for institutions like the National Museum of American History. This trend follows larger historiographical trends at a time when narratives shift away from what Teresa Christina Schreiner called formal narrative or a commons golden path. As the objects and stories of museums became more inclusive, audiences and their expectations changed as greater segments of the population began to identify and recognize themselves in these narratives. As the scope of the narrative grew for museums, museologists, and historians recognized the need for more pluralistic institution. Museums recognized that meaning was created from what objects were collected and how those objects were grouped and exhibited. Historians also recognize that there is meaning in not only the stories they tell, but also in the parts of the stories that go untold. As audiences became more sophisticated, so too did the messages they were receiving from the museum. Gable and Handler argue, quote, if a generation ago the ameliorative task of the history museum was to teach patriotic values, today, in the eyes of many museum educators, it is to teach interpretive skepticism. Both museum and museum goers began to understand that exhibits were constructed narratives and that the narratives were edited. By the turn of the 21st century, museologists went from acknowledging this relationship to actually actively questioning the cognitive dissonance produced by the fact that museum profession aims for neutrality, but also recognizes the impossibility of objectivity. The idea of the historical narrative in the museum became much larger than a matter of how objects were presented to the public. In an article about museums and transparency, Jennifer Harris explains the dichotic relationship between history, museums, and the political, arguing, quote, most museums have not understood that they are political institutions which are necessarily engaged in the production of history and not merely the reflection of it. Museums rarely understand themselves as constituting an historical force, end quote. Instead of merely showing history to a captive audience, museums craft narratives about the past through collecting and presenting history. This practice makes them active participants in the shared pasts of their communities and audiences. But how and why does this participation create a U.S. identity? Museology acknowledges that the politic has played a large role in both museums and the creation of national identities. One of the early ICOFOM study series explored the roles of museums and identity in 1986. A major theme of this study series is the definition of identity. Joseph Bennis defines identity in relation to museums as, quote, reflecting permanent and substantial features of a national culture. Bennis contends that in museology, identity is first defined, then documented, and finally utilized for the development of the society by linking the future with the past, which is important for the social awareness of people. This definition is important because it highlights the role of the past and how it orients people to the present and future. In his definition, Bennett stresses the importance of differences in his discussion, but argues that it is in the sharing of the past that will overcome these differences. He explains that it is the relation between objects, collections, and people that create identity. Museums can highlight this relation by reflecting in their own work by reflecting it in their own work. 
By illustrating how objects of the past are connected, museums illustrate how all people of the present are also connected by that singular past shared experience. Notably, one question raised in 1986 was whether or not museums should, quote, serve as mirrors for living civilizations, end quote. The idea of reflecting the past to influence present and future were also brought up in Vinyosovka's Identity in Space and Time and in the ICOFOM. Sofka captures the relationship between reflecting the past and the future when he argues that museums, quote, glance back and preserve the past. And they have the ambition, recently more and more expressed, to participate in forming the futures of their communities, end quote. This fits with Jennifer Harris's argument that museums are engaged political institutions, defining the traditions and characteristics of the national culture. The main reason that museums interpret the past in a way that creates identity is to help individuals come to terms with their present circumstances. Both Sola and Martin capture this notion in their essays about identity in museums. Sola argues that identity problems are a product of change and that this social angst is prevalent in every age. However, Schreiner best sums it up with her observation that Museums offer a possibility of recreating amidst chaos and permanent change an orderly world where identities can cease to be fragile, vague, and unstable. In the United States, the largest issue with this is the question of who gets to decide what the identity is and how it is represented in museums. As both identity and industry of heritageism grew in the larger part of, latter part of the 20th century, so too did its institutionalization. Certain aspects of sites of U.S. heritage have always been institutionalized thanks to the Roosevelts. Both Theodore Roosevelt, who created the National Park Service, and Franklin Roosevelt, who helped preserve, who made preserving these sites a part of his public works program. These programs helped to establish a federal system of guarding, protecting, and presenting an official U.S. history. Um, as the suggestion of the government lends an idea of legitimacy and authority to these sites. National Museum of American History curator James Gardner suggests that the what that is reflected should be decided by curators who are trained to do good research and insightful exhibitions with a mind for inclusion. What the reflection means should be decided by those who view the exhibitions on the condition that they are made part of the interpretive process. To do this, museums should educate their audiences about the work museums do and the processes by which they do them. National museums or official institutions have the added burden of legislative transparency and partisan politics to contend with as well. Gardner encouraged these institutions to be advocates for their visitors, but laid out five very specific criteria for this. First among them is the idea that visitors must understand how the process of history and interpretation happens in museums. They need to be educated on the fact that the past presented is constructed, but that construction means that it is open for reinterpretation based on perspective and not necessarily on facts. Gardner concludes that advocating for visitors means sharing authority. Quote, we must also make space in our museums and exhibits for our visitors to share their experiences and memories. To do this, great care must be made to ensure that the past is shared with visitors. The past that is shared with visitors is a balance between being accessible enough for them to grasp, but still a complex, nuanced narrative that is inclusive. This inclusiveness should not only reflect the many backgrounds, traditions, and cultures of all that make a shared past. It is also an inclusion of memories that reflect both the highlights and the low. Museums cannot be afraid to present the past from all sides, even in its most base or raw forms. For it is in remembering as many parts of the past as possible that audiences can find solace and relation. 
In conclusion, while it's easy for those in the field to get drawn into current events and popular debate, the job of the museum must remain to educate people about similar situations in the past, to make our history relatable to current events for as much of the population as possible. Advocating can be done. Museums must be conscientious about it. As ICOM starts to reevaluate what a museum is, attention needs to be paid to the larger roles that museums play within both their communities and their nation. Both the museum field and the public history field have openly debated the role of museums as advocates for social change in the last few years. While I believe there is room for advocacy in museums, it must be done carefully, reflexively, and with an eye on how this will help draw audiences together. Thank you. And I'm very sorry I had some issues with an application, so, but I would like to hello everyone and also thank Lara for her brilliant presentation and uh, move and uh, ask Deborah to present Mariko. Mariko Takagama is an independent museum legal scholar and consultant. Mariko is um, from Seattle, Washington, on the western shore of the mainland United States. Her presentation is entitled Legal, Equitable, and Ethical Perspectives on Heritage in Museum, which makes a nice connection to our keynote speaker earlier this morning um, from Arizona. So I'm very interested in hearing um, from Mariko. Welcome. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, today, we are all here to discuss how we can make the new ICOM definition of museum more relevant and how we can maximize its impact on our professional community and broader society. To facilitate this dialogue, I'd like to share my point of view on this topic from three key interrelated concepts, legal and equitable and ethical viewpoints. I'm coming from the natural history collection background, actually, so my opinion may be biased, but please take it as food for thought. Legal, equitable, and ethical issues surrounding museums are increasingly complex and contentious. First, law in relation to museum is least flexible and hard to change. Elected people make laws and change law for the better but it requires tremendous resources and political power for citizens to achieve new law or amend the existing law. Also, legal systems are quite different from one country to another. So from a purely legal standpoint, the chances that ICOM definition directly brings about changes in the existing law in favor of museums are not so high. But that doesn't mean ICOM definition is helpless. Next, looking at equity, here uh, I mean by equity uh, simply uh, referring to fairness and justice. Unlike law, the concept of equity is almost universally applicable to modern societies of democracy. Museums in the U.S. have not been historically shy away from addressing social injustice, gender inequality, and racial disparities persistent within communities. Today's museums have big potential to advance more equitable communities. I think the new ICOM definition can support value of museums in advancing equity in society. Finally, 
museum professional ethics is something we should build together, especially where law is silent on particular issues or where law and equity argument bring the conflict of competing interests. Museums have to make a difficult judgment. In this context, ICOM definition can facilitate our professional judgment when we focus on, when we focus on value. In terms of law, there is no single body of law like, quote, museum law, unquote, at the federal level in this country. Rather, heritage organizations are regulated by a complex set of laws. The ICOM definition is not legally binding to U.S. museums. The ICOM definition itself has no legal effect on the legal status of museums here in the States. A legal definition museum actually exists. For example, a piece of federal legislation called Museum and Library Services Act. This act and its implementing regulations contain museum definition. But this piece of law is intended to establish an independent federal agency, as you know, Institute of Museum and Library Services, or IMLS. The definition embedded within this law is controlling, but it applies narrowly for purpose of determining eligibility for IMLS grants that support museum programs. But it is by no means adopted as the single most authoritative definition of museums in the museological context. It's true that advocacy is important to bring about positive change in law. But a hard reality is that other than joining advocacy campaigns, museums always feel left out of touch with major legal reforms and often see unintended negative consequences rather than positive ones. Whether immigration policy or federal tax reform or data privacy or what have you. Now, turning to equity or issues of fairness and justice. Compared to law, museums have a better chance to achieve meaningful social impact on equity in communities. The doctrine of equity has its root in the common law, and it developed side by side with the doctrine of law. The principle of equity is deeply ingrained in American people's minds because people historically have fought for civil rights under the Constitution in the previous centuries. Also because many museums in the U.S. do not function as purely governmental bodies. They are rather the more private institutions, so they are not required to remain totally neutral, static places. Museums can be active. Institutions have provided a safe, peaceful public forum to start conversations. Museums have, museums have some liberty to stimulate dialogues on politically sensitive topics. In these respects, museums can continue to lead an important role in restoring equity and justice through various public programs, exhibits, and outreach. Museums seem to thrive that way, and the new definition can support it. As a recent trend in connecting museums 
with the issue of equity, American Alliance of Museums, or AAM's trendsetter, known as the Center for the Future of Museums, is recently developing a program called Museum Manifesto for a More Equitable Future. This manifesto is AAM's recent expression of its commitment to museums becoming a bigger player in advancing equity in their communities. The proposed idea is built on a framework originally developed by a think tank called the Institute for the Future, based in Silicon Valley. According to the Institute for the Future, this manifesto aims at promoting fundamental human rights to universal basic assets. These universal basic assets can be both tangible and intangible assets, including natural resources, infrastructure, capital, data, know-how, communities, and power. Museums are going to provide these universal basic assets to communities under this manifesto. The manifesto inspires community members to use museums to achieve more fair and equitable society. This is indeed a highly aspirational model. It may sound too progressive, but if the ICOM definition will allow for museum activism to increase their relevance to today's society, it is an empowering statement. Next, we'll take a look at the relationship between equity and museum on the international level. Realizing equity on a global scale is more challenging than just a national level. The United Nations and other international coalitions use treaties to achieve peace while hitting the economic balance between developed nations and developing nations. As a case study, I've been particularly interested in a treaty called the Nagoya Protocol. Its official treaty title is the Nagoya Protocol on Access to Genetic Resources and the Fair and Equitable Sharing of Benefits Arising from Their Utilization to the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's been in effect since October 2014, so it's only four years old. I'll explain several key concepts. First, genetic resources are any biological resources except human being, but including plants, animals, bacteria, and viruses, whether live or dead. In addition, derived biological products such as extracted DNAs are also covered. Next, the phrase fair and equitable sharing of benefits means that genetic resources have economic value and anyone who wants to take advantage of these materials must share monetary and other benefits derived from such use back to the countries of origin. This benefit sharing can be accomplished by contractual agreements between source or provider country and user of resources. The key idea is that each sovereign nation has legal property rights over natural resources within their territories and they can claim any benefit back to them when used by foreign entities. In fact, biological rich countries, especially in the global south, 
have been watching big pharmaceutical companies, cosmetic companies, and chemical companies. They repeatedly had unauthorized access and illegal appropriation of natural resources from those developing countries. These acts are called biopiracy. Now, looking at this global map, countries in purple, about uh, over hundreds of them, or more than half of the countries of the world, including European Union, are signatory to the Nagoya Protocol. And countries in black, including the United States, is not a party to this treaty, which is not surprising. The Nagoya Protocol imposes new legal obligations on each stakeholder. From the museum viewpoint, those institutions holding biological, ethnographic collections may be affected because they contain genetic resources in their holding. Moreover, museums are also a holder of what's called traditional knowledge associated with genetic resources. Here, traditional knowledge is a legal jargon meaning a type of intellectual property owned by indigenous and local communities. For example, traditional knowledge can be know-how or medicinal use of native plants. Museum people more comfortably call these kind of traditional knowledge as a kind of intangible heritage. According to the Nagoya Protocol, getting something out of traditional knowledge also requires return of benefits back to original source communities. The problem is that the treaty does not differentiate between private corporations and non-profit institutions. Therefore, museums must obey strict rules such as licensing, rights clearance, compliance, and long-term monitoring. This is a complex legal scheme. I will not go much into detail, but this diagram on the slide indicates a part of the regulatory system and obligation that flow between stakeholders. And even worse, museum is not actually depicted in this diagram. Unfortunately, the treaty is not written with museums in mind. But many museums in the U.S. have extensive biological collections, historically amassed from different countries. So they have to serve as intermediary or middleman facilitating transaction between original countries and end users, whether non-commercial researchers or commercial entities. Although U.S. is not a party to the treaty, should American museums ignore this rule altogether? Or are we encouraged to comply with this rule? As can be seen in this case of the Nagoya Protocol, promoting equity over heritage on the international level could be challenging. Even within the U.S., we have experienced slow yet steady progress in readjusting how to treat heritage. For example, under the NAGPRA, Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, tribal communities are regaining ownership of their heritage over the years. Outside the U.S., if your country is a member to the Nagoya Protocol, then the na national government should provide guidance as to how to comply with the treaty. But as I said earlier, 
the United States and about 90 other countries are not legally bound by the treaty. Moreover, researchers worldwide are quite upset about the Nagoya Protocol and criticize it because they are also subject to complex regulatory procedures and as a consequence, the treaty is hindering scientific collaborations. In such difficult situations, the only hope is that museum professionals make a reasonable ethical judgment. Ethics always come into play when museums need to make difficult decision making and at the same time keep professional integrity. In this context, the ICOM definition can possibly help justify our professional conduct when the current legal system does not resolve issues, like in the case of the Nagoya Protocol. Finally, with regard to museums as custodians of the world's heritage, there is growing tension between two contrasting perspectives over heritage. One is heritage as global commons of a universal value of all humankind. Many large-scale institutions were expected to serve as global knowledge base. The alternative, more contemporary perspective is that heritage has special value and unique significance to local and indigenous communities, and that communities should have full ownership and control over those assets and activities. In this sense, fairness and equity are more important factors for heritage management. International heritage law has started to develop to conform to this community-focused view. Under this new view, community and each sovereign nation has control over their heritage. These are critical for sustainable heritage management. On the other hand, many museums in the U.S. already have collections of international scope. We have to realize that conventional practice may no longer be acceptable, even if it's legal. Our work demands ethically sound judgment. Museums have bigger ethical obligations as fiduciary entrusted by communities with their heritage. To summarize, legal, equitable, and ethical issues surrounding the global museum sector are increasingly complex. Because the legal system is all different across countries, and ICOM definition itself is not necessarily legally controlling to the United States and many other countries, we should treat the ICOM definition independently from each country's version of legal definition of museum. When we think about redefining the museum, we want to make sure the new definition will have positive impact on all stakeholders. We need to carefully recompose the museum definition, but revised definition of museum should back up museums' aspiration to promote equity in communities as well as professional ethics. A good definition should bolster museums' significance locally, nationally, and internationally. Thank you very much. I guess, um, Anna, I'll go ahead and introduce Jillian. Um, Jillian Hartley is a professor at Arkansas Northeastern College and adjunct faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. 
Her presentation is entitled, Commemorating the Civil War in Border State, the case of John Hunt Morgan. And this is an extremely timely topic that we're dealing with in the United States. Um, but I'm sure every country has a, has a version of this in their history. <laughs> so without any further ado, um, Jillian. Thank you so much, Deborah, and I want to thank everybody for having the opportunity to be here with you today. I'm very excited that a lot of our brothers and sisters from the international community are here as well. And um, I, I, I do have a connection through my Heritage Studies PhD to a lot of museum studies, but I also, um, I'm on the board of a museum and I have been for about the last four and a half years. I primarily teach, though, and I think as a teacher, one of the things I tend to find is an example. And so when looking at this very controversial issue here in the United States, I actually decided to um, look at a particular case study. You know, when James introduced us, or, you know, and um, greeted us all this morning, he talked about the Enola Gay incident at the Smithsonian. I think sometimes those case studies are what stands out. And so when looking at the definition or a potential definition here for the United States, I think it's very important that we start looking at how to include more people. And if there's any type of history here in the United States that has been more exclusive, it probably is the history of the Civil War and how it's been presented. And so I, I chose a particular individual named John Hunt Morgan. Um, and this may be a new name to many of you, many people familiar with the Civil War in the United States. When they think of Confederates, they think of people like Stonewall Jackson. They think of people like Robert E. Lee. Um, so when, when looking at how to, uh, how to present some of the more recent things that have happened uh, regarding Civil War history, um, I've decided to kind of do him as a case study. So um, because I have no doubt the things happening right now with the removal of Confederate statues will definitely uh, lead to uh, learning how to reexamine uh, particular eras and how uh, we can possibly promote uh, a national conversation that will maybe help with some healing that is long overdue in the United States. But um, just a little bit about him. John Hunt Morgan actually had a Confederate statue erected um, in 1915 um, in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I chose him in particular because he's from a border state. For those of you who are not familiar with border states in the United States, um, in the Civil War, not all states that had slavery were actually a part of the Confederacy. Um, some of the states actually on the border, states like Missouri and Kentucky and West Virginia and Maryland, actually stayed in the Union even though slavery was completely uh, legal in those states. And so those states have always been of particular interest to me because you literally would have people who uh, would spy on their neighbors and be across the street from one another, uh, one on one side and one on the other. Um, John Hunt Morgan's statue was taken down last year. Um, and there's a still kind of up in the air what they're going to do with it. But in trying to examine how um, how this particular chapter will influence the historical narrative and in, in, in museums in the 21st century. I'm going to give you a little bit of background um, because I'm, I'm not really sure that this was somebody who would have ever really deserved being commemorated um, in any way. Um, he's a person who was a slave owner. He's a person who, um, who actually uh, 
volunteered before the war even started to put together a rifle unit to fight for the Confederacy. He was very disappointed when Kentucky did not join the Confederate States. Um, however, he is what we would classify more as somebody who fought in uh, the war using guerrilla tactics. Um, he had a mounted infantry unit under him that did a lot of really bad things during the war. They did things like attack supply lines. Uh, they killed a lot of civilians during the war. And one of the things that I put in my paper is there's always a question of, you know, why these people were celebrated in the first place. In the context of when these statues went up, most of them actually went up in two major waves, uh, the majority of them in the progressive era in the early 1900s. Um, so we're talking a good 50 years after the war came to an end. Suddenly you have this movement to want to, to glorify and, and, and commemorate these, these men like him. Um, but that led me to kind of look at efforts to commemorate him altogether. And so I'll share a couple of examples with you. Um, John Hunt Morgan is somebody who draws in a lot of military enthusiasts uh, because he, he was pretty successful with the types of tactics and things that he used. Um, but he's also been commemorated in a number of ways. And in some of those ways, um, he has been, for example, um, commemorated for the fact that he is the only person other than Robert E. Lee to ever actually invade the North. Um, in 1863, John Hunt Morgan actually took a regiment across the Kentucky River and or the Ohio River uh, from Kentucky into Indiana. And he has this major raid that if you were to drive in that area now, you would find markers commemorating his men coming across the river and actually attacking civilian towns. Um, those are markers, however, that do a pretty good job of depicting what he did. Uh, they, they put a lot of emphasis on the fact that he did kill a lot of civilians and that he eventually did get arrested. Uh, John Hunt Morgan actually got arrested and was sent to a prison, and he actually orchestrated a prison escape. Um, after he came back to the South, he was assassinated by a pro-Union person. Um, one of the things, too, about John Hunt Morgan, he's actually featured in a pretty popular movie. Um, it came out, I believe, in 1957 called Friendly Persuasion. Um, it was about Quakers living in southern Indiana who had to take the brunt of his raid. Um, when, when looking, though, overall at the Confederate statue issue, what I'm trying to kind of put forth is that this is an era that actually has a number of different sections to it. Because even though these are statues that went up to commemorate these men, they went up in the context, actually, of a Jim Crow era. Um, and now that they're being taken down, and of course, this is not the only example of statues being taken down, what we're going to have to do as heritage professionals is figure out now what to do with them. And of course, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. With John Hunt Morgan's statue, um, it's quite an odd situation because there's a cemetery that agreed to take his statue along with that of John C. Breckenridge, which was at the same courthouse as his, uh, and put them in a cemetery, which I'm not really sure that's the place for them. Um, some of you may be familiar that they've taken statues down in New Orleans. Um, in New Orleans, the city council, when they voted to do that, um, did state that they probably should go to a museum, but should only be displayed if they, um, if they are put into the context of the lost cause in the South. 
This is a very uh, interesting issue, though, because there's so many different facets related to it. Being someone who lives in the South, I recognize the fact that a lot of Civil War sites promote heritage tourism. There are small towns that are near some of these sites, and there are definitely, Lexington's not a small town, but there are people who have gone to Lexington solely just to visit uh, the John Hunt Morgan House, a place that has a room dedicated to him. Um, so with a lot of local people, there's interest in making sure that they don't go away, that there is preservation of what they did during the war, um, and it's a lot of it is fueled by an economic standpoint. Um, I think, though, as we kind of proceed into the 21st century and we start looking at how we define the experience in the United States, I've sort of put forth the notion that there is a really good opportunity here. Um, as someone who's taught for a number of years, I recognize that um, Civil War history is something that has been somewhat glamorized, and it hasn't always been extremely inclusive. Um, with the taking down of these statues and other markers, um, we have a real opportunity to try to bring other people into the conversation. We also have an opportunity to put them in the context of another historical period, which is in the early 1900s, and divorce them, or maybe not divorce them, but sort of take them away from that Civil War connection and recognize that those who put them up are the ones who wanted to promote and continue promoting a, ver a South that was dominated by, um, by a white elite. Um, just like today, taking them down, we have city councils now who have decided that they need, it's time to go, that uh, they, they don't long, no longer belong in the public place and that they need to put, be put somewhere. Um, of course, this is very recent. Um, if you're not familiar, there was a shooting um, several years ago in an African-American church here in the United States that inspired a lot of the action to take down the Confederate flag in South Carolina, and, and it kind of you know snowballed into taking down other things that were meant to commemorate the Confederacy here in the United States. Um, but this is a time period, too, that's going to have to be explained as we move forward, and I think it's probably the most controversial time uh, in United States history. And so I think looking forward and looking into the 21st century, it is very, very important that um, when looking at any potential definition, that this particular era and these statues going into places that will display them for others to see, um, really explore the idea that there are past wounds associated with them, uh, put them into proper context, not only in the Civil War, but also in all those Jim Crow eras and in the Civil Rights Movement when a lot of these things were added to. Um, and I noticed that there was a lot of connections with that sort of the concept of being inclusive and using some of these less um, less <laughs> nice, for lack of a better word that comes to my mind, eras to, to really start educating the public. And I see this as an opportunity, too, to really reach out to a lot of minority groups and let them come into the conversation of, of Civil War history, um, because it shouldn't be something that uh, attracts and dominates um, any one particular demographic of, of people. Um, and that's, that's about all I have. I don't know if I hit my 15 minutes or not. Well, um, thank you. Thank you very much, Jillian.
Um, also, thank you to Lara Hall, Mariko, Kageyama. Um, while people are um, uh, preparing or thinking about their questions, um, we will, uh, so please use the person icon located at the top of the page to raise your hand. And when chosen, your microphone will be activated. And in the meantime, I can, um, Anna, if you're there, um, Anna and I can just kind of provide a little, little recap and perhaps an entree to some potential questions. Um, first of all, Laura Hall gave us an outstanding historical review of, um, of how the U.S. museums have evolved. Um, and it takes us to the point where we are still somewhat, some of, some of our museums tend to be more temples of objects, um, still wedded to um, a kind of curatorial elite, you might say. Um, and I'm just beginning to wake up to the fact that the museum needs to be more than that. Um, some put, and then um, they're becoming, there, there's a transition period, of course, but there are some museums who are very much participatory and are forum focused in terms of including uh, their communities and being inclusive of, um, of communities that haven't been heard from. Um, we used to talk about this as object-centric and visitor-centric, but it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And I think Laura gave us some of that complexity. Um, so we're now at the point where how do we, museums are trying to figure out how do we tell the whole story? How do we tell the story of the others, the vulnerable, the excluded? Um, it's, it's all of that. It's, it's everybody's culture, everybody's history, everybody's science. Um, and it's individual, it's community focused, but it's also a shared heritage. So I think that's, um, Laura had some excellent points there. Um, and I guess my question for Laura, um, let me come back around, would be what, do you have some of the um, more outstanding examples of museums you think are accomplishing that objective today in the United States? Um, and then Mariko Kageyama, I learned an incredible amount from Mariko. Um, she taught, she mentioned, and I had taught this in my class, the um, American Alliance of Museums Manifesto, uh, which I would go, it, it's online at the Center uh, for the Future of Museums. I highly recommend everybody reading it because it does provide um, uh, it, a way to, for museums uh, talks about their responsibility in terms of providing and a very good expression, Mariko, of basic um, universal assets to the community that everybody needs to have a kind of equitable, uh, equal access to those assets. Um, not just objects, but the stories as well. And then the Nagoya Protocol. Um, that's very interesting. I just hadn't paid attention to the United States being a signatory or not being a signatory. And so my question that I would ask you would be, um, why, why do you think countries are not, are not signatories to the Nagoya Protocol? And should museums in those countries be advocating for their governments to become a signatories? 
And then we just heard from Jillian Hartley, um, who told us a fascinating story I didn't know about John Hunt Morgan. Um, and yes, she delved deeply into the whole controversy that's going on um, about Confederate statues. And many of them, of course, um, having been erected during Jim, the Jim Crow era as, as, a, as a message to African Americans about um, white power. And so it's a very, continuing a very ugly um, aspect of American history that a lot of us did not learn in our history classes or civics classes. So this is a learning experience for Americans right now. Um, and looking into the 21st century, Jillian, thank you so much. How do we, how do museums begin to um, address these gaping wounds in our country's history um, and um, the, particularly the Jim Crow era and make it into an opportunity? What is, what is the opportunity for museums? Should they begin having forums? Um, I mean, how do you give that kind of, as, 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 um, as uh, Mariko was saying, um, and as Laura Hall was saying, how do we, how do museums provide equity and equal access to, um, to, to the universal assets of our community? And how, and how do the statues from the Confederacy, um, how do we address all aspects, um, why they were built, um, who built them, where they were placed, and now where are they going, and who participates in that decision? I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's my long-winded wrap-up and a few um, questions. I don't know if we should go ahead and start. Uh, uh, Laura, I think I challenged you to go first. Um, if you, if, if, is there a museum that you can identify that is really forward-thinking in terms of um, well, um, and this kind of ties back to Jillian's presentation as well. Uh, one thing that came to mind when you asked the question was, um, I was in New Orleans recently, and we were looking at doing a plantation tour. Uh, one of the plantations there, the Whitney Plantation, has moved their focus on the tour from uh, this sort of kind of grand narrative plantation to the slave experience. Um, and I know that's something that's come up quite a bit in public history is how to tell that story in a way that can be enjoyable for audiences. Um, I don't know that enjoyable is quite the right word, but like to do it in a way that you could still bring your children to and um, things like that. And they've been really successful at it. Um, I, from what I understand, we didn't get a chance to make it out there, but uh, that would be, I think, an example of kind of turning things around and sort of making a more inclusive history. It's Sarah Torres. Torres Vega, she still has her hand raised. Um, Jane? I wanted to ask you, and I think it's for all presenters, thank you for your wonderful presentation. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, about those stories that go untold. Who do you think, and I'm thinking in a very speculative terms, who do you think should get to define the terms in which these stories are told? Um, well, I'll, I'll try to address 
what I think of it. I think I think one of the biggest challenges is is making sure that we include everybody's voices. I would make the case that a lot of the the stories that have been told in the last 150 years have have told one particular side and they have promoted one particular agenda, which has not been a very good one. So in the case of like Confederate um, markers, I think the we, we need more minority input. We definitely need input from the African American community. I think it's a challenge to do that, though. Um, one of the things that sad, saddens me as an instructor over the years is um, how little emphasis uh, when teaching the Civil War, how little emphasis is actually put on the experience of African Americans from, uh, I mean, from a multitude of different levels, from how the Emancipation Net Proclamation affected them. Um, in the case of, of, of John Hunt Morgan, there's actually, um, in, a mu in a museum, they actually have a picture of a man named Wesley Hunt who worked for John Hunt Morgan as a, or was his slave for a time who after the Emancipation Proclamation, he actually fled to the North to join the Union Army. And so you basically have a former slave of a man who's fighting him, whether they actually fought one-on-one, -on -one, no idea. But you know, I think that we've, we've seen exclusion for so many years. The challenge is how to go about bringing in you know, people who have felt left out and pushed to the side for, for so long. That's that's a big challenge and it's a big risk and it's hard, you know, being affiliated with the museum, it's sometimes really hard to start that conversation and to get people to, to come to the table when they've been left out for so long. I think that's very important uh, that, that we get to acknowledge our history as museums for, unfortunately, places for exclusion in many, in many cases. Uh, Laura, did you have a response to that? Um, yeah, actually, I think, um, and this is sort of a historical perspective, I know one of the things that came up a lot um, for me in school uh, was also sort of like this idea of legitimacy and legitimizing the sort of other voices in history. Um, one of the things that came up for me was um, I did a study on the Underground Railroad and sort of how it's interpreted, um, and it's like at the time, the sites for the Underground Railroad weren't recognized by the uh, National Historic Preservation Board because they weren't kept in the same state that they were when they were important. And so because of that, we I think we have to kind of retool sort of how we do things and what we consider to be legitimate or not legitimate because that's the only way to kind of include these voices. When you've been ignored for 150 years and the site has moved on and it's someone's house um, and looks like a 1960s house, um, it's hard to go back and use sort of our standards and say, okay, this was also an Underground Railroad site, and this is how it operated that way. Um, and so I think that also kind of becomes an important part of the conversation as well. Thank you so much. And I, I really have enjoyed so um, much your, well, everybody's presentations, but uh, it really, your resonate especially with me in the sense that uh, reflecting the past in the future and how we get to reimagine ourselves while thinking what we have done before. And that sometimes it's not a beautiful story. We need to remember that. <laughs> um, Mariko? 
Do you have a um, response um, to the same question? Yeah, sure, Based briefly. In the context of the uh, museum manifesto for a more equitable future, I think the process heavily involves reaching out to that those most marginalized communities that we need to pick up those voices and uh, let them speak their stories and then facilitate conversations. And then all those uh, would help promote that uh, access to you know basic uh, universal basic assets uh, you know history uh, learning history itself could you know promote you know what exactly uh, you know universal basic assets mean to them what we need you know build together as a community so I think that you know approach uh, the framework of this manifesto is pretty uh, you know, interesting that we should seek out further um, methodologically. Thank you so much. I really have found your presentation. Well, we are. I didn't know many things about uh, what you what you have been explaining, and that uh, that process that is uh, sometimes emotional. And what's the role of that kind of emotion in the institution? That ethics. Uh, reflecting the past and the future and uh, including those stories, uh, how how all that can be very much embedded in emotion. <laughs> That's totally, um, you know, true. And um, also um, that emotion triggers uh, more uh, dialogues and then more um, equal conversation, not that just giving, you know, delivering the information from museums to the community, but rather communities give to museums the information that also equalize that, you know, asset distribution. Yes, and it's an opportunity to challenge those uncontestable truths. Sometimes I, I find myself thinking of things that are so very clearly uh, established in my mind, and then I need others that are not necessarily inside the museum world to, to challenge and test those, uh, those truths. I think um, that was a good point that, um, that she raises. And um, so I guess that's the other part of the equation is, um, so how do museums rethink how we do what we do when we're dealing with audiences that we haven't dealt with in the past, um, whose stories we haven't told, who haven't felt included, um, who might not be reflected in our staff or our board? Um, so how do we begin that? How do we begin that process? where it's not a we-you situation, where it's a we, <laughs> a win-win situation, I guess, where we need to listen to the community as much as we want the community to listen to the research that the museum has done. How do we really take that next step? I mean, how do we, what are the ways that museums need to think or operate differently? Do you have some thoughts about that? Um, 
Jillian, we can start with you. Well, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and um, it's with the museum, obviously, there's, there's a lot of things you can try to do to get the public to come in and to be interested from just trying to get good press, advertising, and things like that. Um, I'm kind of in the mindset one of the things that we should start doing is promoting uh, museums to younger people who don't see them as something that's just boring and but you know really promote them as a place to come and that are educational where everyone will see themselves there and the past of their people I think that's one way to to start providing that connection um, it's it's kind of difficult though because sometimes you know with with people um, you know sometimes they have a mindset and um, what I have found is that museums too are oftentimes you know sort of labeled as being boring by some people um, and uh, it, but I think they're more interesting when people can see themselves you know when you see your own experiences there or can relate to the experience of people who are like you you know um, and I think museums are doing a pretty good job of trying to be more inclusive you know because I can remember as a child going into museums I really didn't see anything about females, you know, you know, you know <laughs> who really accomplished anything. And, you know, but my love of history eventually kind of poured over into public history, which is what drew me to, to that. But um, it's, it's, it is a challenge. And, you know, I don't know if anybody else has any ideas. Um, I think it kind of goes back to sort of educating the public about what we do. Um, and making that whole process more transparent. Um, if, you know, we can explain, like, we are trying to be more inclusive, we would like to include more stories, and get their input so that they can see the reflection of themselves, and it's their version of themselves as opposed to what my version of the slave experience was or what a Confederate monument means, which would be very different than someone else's. So I think kind of getting to the point where we can say, this is the past as we perceive it, and it's not set in stone, it's not necessarily unchangeable, um, is a great way to kind of start to get more people involved and to help them see themselves there. And I believe we have a question um, from oops, uh, Jane, can you help me out here? Sure, um, from Dr. Fabian Soa. Um, I wanted to um, come back to something that Mariko mentioned that is uh, quite specific to the United States, which is the fact that it has really two different branches of museums, the public ones and the private ones. And I think that this is really relevant into the narrative that the public institutions are trying to incorporate and rethinking their past, because what I have noticed in the public ones, they tend to um, address these issues. Um, um, for instance, um, the San Francisco uh, Modern, uh, Museum of Modern Arts is having um, an exhibit and talks with um, some artists that are raising the issues of segregation and um, other topics that are relevant today and that precisely in the public in, uh, museums are being raised how to bring those issues together. And my question is, um, are these two branches, I'm going to say, of American uh, United States Museum talking to each other to address the, these issues? 
and how to bring them forward, to move forward. Um, I'm going to briefly uh, make a comment on your question, and I hope that Lara and uh, Julian can help. Um, I think, uh, legally speaking, the distinction between the public and private institutions, uh, you know, more functional or the really administrative aspect, but what they are trying to do, you know, each institution is trying to achieve it's totally up to their uh, mission. You know, each institution is supposed to make a mission statement. And uh, that could include, you know, we would like to, you know, improve that, you know, something in the community or, you know, that improve that understanding of the history, cultural history of this region or the natural science, whatever. But, you know, I think, you know, depending on the, uh, you know, museum mission and goal and objective, you know, I think that differentiates uh, their more, you know, commercially focused or the more public interest or the public, you know, oriented uh, activities. But probably that Lara and Julian has a different opinion. It's Laura and say if Laura and Jillian would like to provide some closing oh. thoughts on that question. We have about two minutes left to our panel, but I do want to get um, allow both of you an opportunity to respond to to the question. Well, I make I'll make mine really quick, and I think it's just in, the public versus private thing is just go, it pours over into so many things in the United States and. One of the issues with the private museums is that they really are trying to make money, and it's a very difficult thing. And so when they put up what, whatever their displays are, they really are trying to put up what's going to cater to uh, people who are willing to come in and, and pay money. And so, for example, if you go to the Spy Museum in, in Washington, D.C., there's a whole James Bond exhibit, because obviously there are people who will go there for that reason, where you might not see that type of thing at the Smithsonian because it's public funding. But I, 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 get, to your, I get your point that it would be great to have a definition that would apply to both, but I'm not so sure that the profit margin won't always be a factor in. Okay, thank you. Um, I guess I, I feel like Things like what we're doing today, um, professional organizations and having uh, like ethics, professional ethics and standards, which I think Mariko brought up in her talk, uh, sort of puts us on the same page. Um, I know with the professional organizations, there's some question about whether or not totally private museums can join or not, like if you're for-profit or not-for-profit. Um, so it also kind of depends, I think, on the definition that you're using there. Um, I'm sorry, I should have said nonprofit institution, but that are not public. I did not mean for-profit museums. I definitely meant the Guggenheim, SFMOMA, um, all the museums that basically are nonprofits and that really work within their mission. I agree with Mariko totally. They have a specific mission within their structure of a museum of what they represent, but are certainly not, I was not mentioning the for-profit uh, sector of the field. Right, and that's why I think Sorry about having conversations like this and having panels that address these sorts of things and being able to talk to the field about inclusivity like really helps, um, and I think it kind of puts us all on the same page. 
even if um, the institutions themselves aren't necessarily on paper or in our mission statements quite the same. Well, James, I think this is the end of panel one. It's been a delight to, um, to participate with all of you this morning. I look forward to seeing you at a, um, a conference somewhere soon <laughs> in the museum world. We we're good at our conferences. Great, fantastic. Thank you all. And um, thank you to Anna. Unfortunately, she had some uh, technical difficulties, and our attendees probably noticed that um, her video fell off um, a little while ago. So uh, we, we were sorry to see her go, but we were very happy that we could have her around for at least part of the panel. Um, at this point, we would just ask the panelists um, to stop their video and their audio. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to put up the third poll in our series for the day, in our series of polls, um, at which point we will take a brief break. Um, in, for, the, um, for the sake of keeping us on target with time, we're only going to take about a 13-minute break rather than the entire um, 15 minute break. We'll meet up here again at about 1.45, at which point I believe Dr. Rob Denning will be introducing panel two. So thank you very much.